0: Clarice, we're so glad you're back. There's this story I tell people often about uh, what Clarice said to me once after we were going through these seven disciplines on the church, and one of them was being with children, um, and Clarice came up to me afterwards and said, you know, I really like that sermon, and I said, uh, I didn't like it that much, um, but it's nice to hear that you enjoyed it, and she said um, to me, uh, we well don't hear a lot of sermons on that, uh, and I thought, uh, you're going to love Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy because you don't hear a lot of sermons on the rebellion at Korah either. So let's uh, let's reset the bar on this one. Um, it's a challenging text. It's a hard text for us. It's a hard lesson for us what's contained here. Um, the story of these people rising up again. You know, I was fly fishing with Hampton this week, um, and he had a, a question that he was going to ask me a little bit later, but the first thing he started with, what is wrong with these people? Um you know, they just keep coming back again in rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. They keep warring against God. They keep coming back. And one of the things that I wanted to, I alluded to last week, but what Hampton read for us during, during the music time was that when Moses re-describes this period to the Israelites in the beginning of the book of Deuteronomy, he says that you hated the Lord and what he was doing for you. That they had hated that they had been brought out of Egypt. That they didn't trust who God was. And there's a there's a later tradition that develops in the Old Testament, which sort of talks about um, this time in the wilderness with God as a time of sort of wooing that God is is trying to bring them into love with Him, to move them from this place of hate and angst against God and move God into this place of love and desire to be near to Him. And it's part of the challenge of of sort of reading the Book of Numbers is to see how that takes shape and how that takes place to move hatred to loving. I, I talked about last week how when I was in a Bible study um, a long time ago and I confessed to the group that life was really hard um, and I had no power within me to doubt that God existed, but I did d- doubt that God liked me, um, that all these things were coming against me. And as I said that because I didn't practice it or prepare it um, and thought about it more this week because it was a realization that 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 connected in the moment. It was not something I had really thought through. I think of how deadly of a place that is to be, to really doubt the goodness that God might have for you. I I think that the group I was in um, at the time was more content that I wasn't doubting God. um, But I think that properly understood, if we look at the Bible, the, the, the idea that God is against you, it might be more dangerous than doubting the existence of God. Because the one is easy to repair, right? That God can, can somehow reveal himself to you or come to, to trust or you can get back into that place of believing in God. But the one that God doesn't like me, that God how somehow is against me, that's a bigger challenge to sort of repair. That's a relationship breach. That's, that's a lack of, of trust in the goodness that God has for you. Um, and so this week, thinking about the dangers of that. So we have this, this text of this, this next rebellion where the people clearly sort of see that again, that, that God is not for them, that God is not going to lead them to this place. And so they rise up against God and God's chosen leaders, and they, and they speak against the assembly. And that is the, the, the place that we start at today is that Korah calls out these people. And, and it's, um, have, have you ever been a part of a whisper campaign to, to, to sort of like rid yourself of a principal, a boss, a bad employee? where you just, uh, or a pastor. I mean, <laughs> the church, this is the hard part about this story in Numbers, is wow, this one seems so much like the church. Um, hey, uh, the pastor, the leader, is, uh, is, is lording it over us. They're doing a bit too much. They've set themselves apart, and then they whisper and whisper, and it spreads throughout the camp, and then they finally go, okay, we got 250 uh, plus threes, so 253, uh, let's go. And let's go um, let our things be known to this person. Let's, let's see if we can overwhelm them. Let's see if we can win. They even have some pretty solid logic on their side. And so the first sort of thing they come to is, is they come to Moses and they say, you've gone too far in this. You've gone too far in this. Now, it's unclear what they're referring to exactly, but, but what they say is they've set them apart in some way. One of the things that they use against Moses is this command um, that, that says that um, all the community is holy and that the Lord is with them. They actually come with like a true teaching that, that these people have named as God's holy and chosen ones and that they are to be, have the Lord reside among them. And so they come and they say, all the community is holy. Who are you to lord it over us? Who are you to hold this over us? But as you look at what they're saying, it actually sort of comes out to be more envy than anything. They're they're masking, and this is true when we have participated in whisper campaigns or been the victim of them, is they're masking their real complaint, right? Well, we're all the holy ones of God, so we too should not be separated that way. You've gone too far. You've made too much of this. And I think this is true in our, in our own stories when we get to these points is that we want the future that God promised for us now. First off, anybody who's led or done a whisper campaign or, or sort of against somebody is, uh, thinks that they are right, thinks that they are the holy ones. Uh, we are holy too. The Lord resides amongst us. That's not a unique factor in this. That's, that's sort of par for the course, right? But the thing is, they, they, they seem to want the future that God's bringing them to, that we are holy and God, the right sides among us, without any of the work. Now, one of the things we've talked about with Numbers is, is how Numbers is both a, a story about this, um, is, is the true story of this people being brought from the wilderness into the promised land, that this is the story of, of the people that God has chosen. But there's also this other story that, that traditionally this, this story has been read as, as the story of our own souls out of sin out of egypt and into god's promised and new life for us and i think that that here it becomes clear that when you begin the quest of holiness you know uh, i don't know if it's for you if you're trying to rid a sin from your life or beginning to become more holy that you say okay it's been that we don't get the amount of time between the spy story and this story but you could say in your own mind it's like well i've been doing good for seven days So I have the right to rise up and reassert. Maybe you've been doing good for 10 years, and you think, you know what? Finally, I have the time and the right to rise up and reassert, to claim this future that God has for me because I've made some progress. I've made it somewhere. I am the Holy One of God now. That's a dangerous spot to be, to claim that on yourself as you are still in the wilderness, as you're still awaiting the promise of God to say that this is me now. This is who we are now, the holy ones. It's almost like checking yourself as at the destination before you even get there. Um, it's, it's cutting the path short to say that you're already there and their idea that they've Moses has gone too far is, is important to remember that these people have only known one kind of leader. They've only known Pharaoh. All leadership to them, all of this calling of this priesthood, all of this to them looks abusive. It looks alienating. It's part of the reasons last week, and, and we didn't quite get into it too much, but with the spy story and these people dying in the wilderness, it's almost a grace for them because they can't handle the goodness that God has prepared for them. It's like the second they would get there, they would find a way to ruin it. They can't even handle it in the, in the spots of trust and time that they are, that it's almost a grace that they can, they can sort of fall into this place. And so they rebel against Moses and the only leader that they've had outside of Pharaoh using similar complaints they've had against him before. Now, it's important to remember in Moses' biography when God comes to him and appears in the burning bush and gives him this mission, he says that the people won't listen to him. Moses' whole life after that has been plagued with the people not listening to him. And here's one of the highest challenges against his leadership is to say that you are just like that. You are just building yourself up, setting yourself apart, doing this thing, that the people are really coming to attack Moses here. And as we talked about it, it that when you look at the rebellions, this is an image from a book, but the, the rebellions mirror each other. This happened with um, in chapter 11 uh, with Miriam and Aaron. They sort of come upon Moses in this way. But now it spreads to the people. The leadership have this fight here, and so this is what... Moses is being dealt with here but Moses is, is a little bit wiser in this moment or, or is wise and he says to them that God will decide let us bring out our censers these these things in which you sort of put a burning offering and let God decide to see which one burns which is interesting because Moses or somebody most people would respond uh, referring to their dignity. Do you not know what I've done for you? Have you not seen what the Lord has done through me through for you? Have you not seen how this has been going? Um, they would refer to themselves. They would refer to the relationship they have to God. They would refer to these things. And what Moses says is let's let God decide. If I've done these things, God will will surely decide against me. And if you are holy and if you are ready, then God will, will light your censers and not mine that they come to this place of, of that this is how we'll decide, and Moses calls them out. But then Moses calls the two other men out. Um, sorry. Uh, well, first he says to them, I like that he says back to them, they've gone too far. So their complaint against him is that he's gone too far. In in the first grade attitude that we have, Moses refers back to them as going too far. But then he summons Dathan and and. Uh, Abiram, how'd you say it, Shelley? Abiram, you're probably right. You said it with confidence, so you win. Um, He says to them, you know, that they should come up too. And what they say is we will not come. We will not come up. There's two interesting parts about this. uh, From the beginning, God has promised to bring the people up out of Egypt. And what they say is we're not going to come up. We're not going to come to meet with you. They're refusing to go into this, con- this contest or this decision with Moses. And not only that, they have this way of remembering that Egypt was the land of milk and honey. They argue that Egypt was the promised land. Now this surely is a great offense, to think that the promised land was the land of slavery to think that the promised land was the place in which you were you were beaten and robbed and, and barely given a life to live. Um, the promised land was Pharaoh's land, is what they say. It was the land of milk and honey. And I think this is for us, too, is that as you leave a life of sin, as you move towards God's holiness, there's there are times where it arises within you, or me. I mean, this... Um, I always joke that people don't have a proper, under, most Christians, I think, fail to properly understand human fallenness. It's a big thing for me is that, and so when I say most people, I'm like, I think this is true. may not be true for you, but I think in our fallenness, we have this chance to remember things backwards if we're being brought to holiness to say, it was better when we lived in slavery. Slavery was a better home for me than where God is, is bringing me out in this wilderness. Because you don't know or you don't trust what resides on the other side. That's part of what's happening with the Israelites is, is they don't believe in what's on the other side. They don't believe that that land is truly good for them. But more so, they, they see that they had these, these comforts in this way of being in Egypt that was a home for them. And I think this is the ways in which we, we have sort of our soft idols in our life. And sometimes we can convince ourselves as God is pushing us out in the wilderness to holiness to the life that he has restored for us, is that these soft idols were actually good for us. The promised land may be great, but the land I came from isn't that bad. That was the land that God has promised for me. Something that I think can rise up within us too as we move towards God's holiness and, and out in the wilderness is, is that to, to, to relieve some of our idols, to relieve some of our sin, is to actually make ourselves more, Um, is to actually bring us into this place where there is suffering and hardship. Part of what this whole story is about, and particularly this story, but the whole book of Numbers, is about how hard it is to move from the wilderness of, of, how hard it is to move from slavery in the wilderness time into the promised land. Scripture does not make this easy. Which is funny because Christians want to sometimes make it so easy. Just pray about it. Just give it to the Lord. Um, just let it go. Um, just believe a little bit harder. Sometimes scripture uh, gives us the truth a little bit harder than we want it. You want to leave slavery, you want to leave the place of sin and of death, and you want to walk into the promised land, well, it's going to be long, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be tough. And there will be moments when you die, moments when you lose, moments in which you don't understand what is going on. And to go that with God is a dangerous thing. There's this great story in the, in the Gospel of John that I love about where Jesus tells them that you have to uh, uh, eat his uh, body as if the bread, the bread he's giving out and drink his blood. And all of his followers leave him. And he says to the disciples, why won't you leave as well? And the disciples say, where else shall we go? Which is the most apathetic response <laughs> ever. What else are we going to do? But then they say it's because you have the words of life. It's in you we find life. And so for us, too, there are hard times where where many of us might want to abandon. And when we hang around, Jesus says, why didn't you leave? And we have the, uh, what else would we do? Somehow we found life here in this place. And so we remain less confident in our own ability, but more in the trust that you have the words of life. It's interesting, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says, you know, I set before you life and today death and to choose life. Even as they're about to enter into this land, God, or Moses, lays out that promise again for them, is that they have this opportunity for life and they have this uh, propensity towards death, and what he calls for them is to choose life, to choose the place where life resides. And so this is the challenge of this moment for them. But getting back to the story at hand, getting back to what's happening here, is so they don't want to come up. They say, do you want to treat these men like slaves? That's, that's their complaint, that he would be like Pharaoh to them. God says, don't listen to these guys <laughs> because he hasn't done anything wrong yet. He hasn't done anything wrong to them. And so he says to them again that they should all appear with the 250 and that they should come to that place and, and meet with God there. What happens is the glory of the Lord descends, and and the Hebrew word for for glory is kavod, um, and the the this notion for glory it's more often like carries this note of heaviness and burden, or may be honor in some sentences too. It's got it's a big word that doesn't just mean glory, but it connotates that there's something heavy there. Now we sang um, glory uh, in our Uh, God with us today we're standing in your glory and I think that that is a right and strong goal for Christians the same worship we move into standing in God's glory but also there's a heaviness and there's a weight there and seriously in, in this story in these stories there's a danger there it's not an easy thing to say, I want to stand near to this God. I want to stand in this God's glory. I want to be close to this God's glory. It's, a, it's something we take on at our own risk at times. And here's where chorus is, is really wrong in this, is that he thinks he's holy at the start. We're holy. We can stand in this um, unapproachable light. We can stand in this heaviness. We can carry this weight. And so what happens is the glory of the Lord appears. Moses tells them to separate themselves from the assembly. And then Moses falls down and he says, O God who gives life breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly only when one man sins? Moses intercedes for the people here again. And then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dantham, and Abiram." Moses got up and they move away and they move back. And he says, do not touch anything belonging to them. So they moved back. And then Moses said, this is how you will know the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it is not my idea. These men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all kind. Then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, And the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belonged to them. And they go down alive into the realm of the dead. Then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. And as he finishes saying these things, the ground under them splits apart. The mouth is open and it swallows them and their household and all the associates of Korah with their possessions. And they went down into the realm of the dead and to Sheol, where everything they owned and the earth closed over them and they perished and they were gone for the community. And Moses says to the people that if I, am, if I am wrong here, if I'm not the one that God has sent and choosen, chosen, that these men will surely live out their days. But the glory of the Lord consumes them from the ground up. Now, if you remember last week, one of the reasons they didn't want to go into the promised land is because the land would consume them. Oftentimes, the punishments are them getting what they want or what they thought would happen. Oh, if we go there, the land will consume us. And in this moment, the land opens and consumes them. This is Act 2. This is my drawing of the land, consuming them. It was challenging. That one I could not quite quite get down. Uh, I tried several times. Um, But the land opens up and consumes these men. And everything goes down with them. And then at the censor the fight, the, the ones holding, the 250 holding these censors, they all are burned up, which I, I think is a, an interesting fulfillment of what they wanted too because they brought these sensors out to have them lit with fire. They brought them out to have them lit. And what God does is he consumes them with the fire. Um, they are lit more than they had hoped for in some ways. Um, but it shows, uh, it, I mean, when we read these things, they're funny, but also, um, it's the challenge of being near to this God. It's the challenge of having this God as your God, of becoming fruit, f- um, becoming a blessing through this God, becoming a distinct and holy people carries with it risk and trials. And so these men are consumed too, and the people, um, freak out as they should, um, they don't know what to do with all this, um, and what God tells them to do is he first to take the the censers and that I didn't even want to try and draw off if that's what it looks like, um, and sort of make them into a covering for the for the ark because they make them into a bronze covering, and it's helpful that God makes visual aids for his people. I think in the last story before this, God tells them to wear. I was at a. I think it was here, uh, yeah, it was uh, was eating at local, and all these boys came in with blue tassels hanging four off of their clothes, uh, and they were Orthodox Jews, and they were wearing these visual aid reminders of what God has done for them. It's often with Protestants, we don't do a lot of this. We wear crosses occasionally, but like they actually sort of take seriously, both in the Old Testament um, and in this story, making visual aids of both out of their sin, which is interesting, that they take the bad things that they've done and it becomes a visual aid in which God can repair something. And then they also take these, these tassels, these other things, that God makes visual aids for them to be reminded of them. It's almost like if we're thinking about God's glory, if we're thinking about God's people, it's, it's nice to have visual ways of remembering it in your life. If you've ever read old Russian literature, they always sort of seem to go into rooms and cross themselves. They look for an icon or something and they they sort of make a sign of the cross and it was a way of sort of inviting sort of the holy into every space. Um, there's, a, there's a hocus-pocus element of that that I think we're right to rebel against and then there's also, I think, a helpful way in which these reminders serve as tangible goodness to bring our minds back to God in places where we wouldn't expect them to have these things happen. Um, and so this is part of the challenge here, and so they make those things into a cover for it. The last act, um, Act 3, which we didn't read, um, contains this idea in Chapter 17 that they bring all of the staffs, there's a staff of each of, of the tribes is brought and brought to the, to the tent of meeting. And they say whoever's staff sort of blooms or something happens to it, that will sort of settle this question for us of who's the priest. Now, on the bright side, you're thinking, I'm not holding anything. God cannot torch me now. Um, This is surely better than holding a censer and asking for fire. Um, It would be worth avoiding that. So they bring them. And what happens is Aaron's rod blooms. It, it, It blooms with almonds, which is actually sort of white. But if I put white up there, you wouldn't see it. Um, and it blooms with this thing. It, it becomes sort of a living thing. And so God performs another miracle here and making sort of a dead, disconnected thing into a living thing. And it's uh, Psalm 23 that we're reminded of, that your rod and your staff, they comfort me. That Aaron's job here is to be one of comfort for the people. Now moving back in the story, when the, when the fire breaks out in the camp, And all these people, um, a plague breaks out. What Moses says to Aaron, and this is a a huge thing that he asks Aaron to do, is he asks him to make an incense offering to the Lord. You just saw how that turned out very poorly. And Moses makes, or Aaron makes this incense offering, um, and he intercedes, and it says he stands between the living and the dead. It's with Jesus, too, that we find this one who stands between the living and the dead. It's in some sense with us as a people of priests to be a people of intercession for the world, to be a people who bring these things, who take risk upon ourselves. There's certainly risk in what Aaron does here. To please the Lord as people are perishing, to be an intercessor who moves into the places between the living and the dead. There's this wonderful phrase in a, in a book about baptism. It, it says that um, baptism is the invitation to be in the neighborhood of chaos. Um, to be initiated into the the waters of chaos is to be in the neighborhood of chaos. To be Aaron in the situation is to be one who doesn't flee from the chaos of the world, but goes into it with an offering to God. And here's where their rebellion is certainly very wrong, is that they think that this is a position for power and for strength and for building your name up. It says uh, that Shelley read for us is that these people in earlier numbers, they're assigned to carry the holy things of the Lord, the most holy things, the people of Korah. And they think if we get one step up the chain more in this relationship with this God, we'll have more power, more fame, more renown. When in fact, the call that Aaron has is not an easy call at all. It's to be one of intercession. It's one to offer sacrifice for the people. It's one to be close to the neighborhood of death and chaos in a way that you wouldn't wish upon yourself. You wouldn't want to be at this level. You wouldn't want to be at this place for the most part. And so God provides the sound with the sprouting of Aaron's rod. There's one last thing uh, for today's sermon that I w- wanted to, to briefly hit on is, is, is the people descend into Sheol, Sheol. Um, and we just finished the Creed series. And one of the things that I actually changed my mind is I used to prefer just to be eccentric, I think, to some degree, which is a bad reason to prefer anything, is that we would say he descended into hell um, in the Creed. But uh, as I studied, it became clear, no, it's, it's more likely that Jesus on Holy Saturday descends to the realm of the dead, to the place of Sheol. And if you look at the scriptures, both the New Testament and the Old, that seems like a clear truth. But what happens with these people, Korah and his family and others, and it says that his his children live on later in Numbers, um, they descend to Sheol alive. They descend to the place of the dead. And, and what does it mean that we have a God who also descends to that in Jesus Christ? That the place of their darkest punishment, the place that in modern uh, that, that later sort of becomes hell as, as the idea develops a little bit more, but to be in that place. And I think in our journeys, I believe in our journeys of holiness, there's a spot where we too are consumed by the earth. There are moments when you feel, even in the course of life, maybe it's not even something bad, where it feels like the earth has consumed you and you've been sent to shield yourself. There are times where everything is too much and it overwhelms. And that's part of this journey through this desert as we move towards becoming the people that God has for us. But what I wanted to close with is reading Psalm 88. And Psalm 88 is weird because it's transcribed to the sons of Korah. There's uh, like eight psalms that are written to the sons of Korah, which seems like a very, I didn't know that until this week. um, And it seems like, why they exist as a people afterwards. They're counted at the end of the census. But why would the sons of Korah have their own psalms? And almost all of them are, are similar in that they're written from bad places, dark places. Uh, there might be one or two exceptions of the eight. But Psalm 88 talks about, is your love, is your hased? is your faithful kindness declared in the grave? Your faithfulness in destruction? It talks about the ways in which we cry out day and night. It's almost written from the place of Sheol. Jesus on the cross quotes Psalm 22. um, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But if you were to say which psalm would Jesus quote on Holy Saturday, it might be near to Psalm 88. And I think as we can find our own Sheols, our own hells on earth, It's right for us to sit with these words, and this will be the the closing prayer for today's sermon. So let us pray. Lord, you are the God who saves me. Day and night I cry out to you. May my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like one without strength. I am set apart with the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, who are cut off from your care. You have put me in the lowest pit, in the darkest depths. Your wrath lies heavily on me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. You have taken me from my closest friends and have made them repulsive to me to them and made me repulsive to them. I am confined and cannot escape. My eyes are dim with grief. I call to you, Lord, every day, spread out my hands to you. Do you show your wonders to the dead? Do their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave your faithfulness and destruction? Are your wonders known in the place of darkness? Or are your righteous deeds in the land of oblivion? But I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning my prayer comes before you. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? For my youth I have suffered a man close to death. I have borne your terrors and am in despair. Your wrath has swept over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. All day long they surround me like a flood. They have completely engulfed me. You have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. God, we at times reside in this liminal space of darkness. And death, we are two ones who can pray Psalm 88, where we ask that our prayers would rise before you, that your love would be declared in the grave, that your wonders would be known in that place. So too, we give thanks for the descent of your son and becoming a human and taking on the flesh, and not only that, but tasting death and going to the grave. So that even as we reside in the lowest places, you are with me. You are there. We ask all of this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Be with us now. Amen.